Welcome to the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. As part of the DICE Collective, our unique podcast connects scholars and leaders in feminist political economies to youth who envision an alternative world that treats them as people instead of as profits. Inspired by the Kumbaya River Collective by African-American women in the 1970s, we invite you to listen along with an open mind and a hopeful heart. I'm your host, Serena Bahador, at the University of Toronto Scarborough. We are back for our second episode of season two with the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. Today's episode is Queering the Solidarity Social Economy with Dr. Sarah Shroff. Dr. Sarah Shroff is a queer feminist with Indian, Pakistani, and Kenyan roots. As an interdisciplinary and transnational scholar, her studies have taken her all over the world. Her personal and professional life have accumulated beautifully towards her dynamic perspective, which aims to deconstruct our everyday economic structures to fit our identities instead of the other way around. Dr. Schroff holds a PhD from the New School in New York. Her wide scholarship stretches across collateral genealogies of race, coloniality, cultural memory, affect, aesthetics, and sexuality in contemporary South Asia and its diasporas. Her intimate focus on the many intersectionalities of gender and their representations invite your warm self-reflection as much as they insist on your firm advocacy. Hello, Dr. Schroff. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Serena. It's wonderful to join you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So as we begin our discussion today, we want to focus on queering the social solidarity economy. And in order for us to do this, it's important for us to understand where it is and where it stands today. And since you're a scholar and an expert in idioms stemming from feminist political economy and queer perspectives, how would you explain to youth what the social solidarity economy is? Uh, Thank you, Serena, for First of all, thank you so much for such a lovely and gorgeous introduction. I really appreciate that. So let me begin with uh, what is economics? I think your question is so important because it really forces us to go to the root of what these what this term means, social solidarity economics. In simple terms, economics is the study of things, products and services, how they are made, how they are used, how they are moved. It studies the processes of who produces them, what are the costs and benefits, who bears the costs and who benefits. So social salary economy is an ethical framework which demands we think about profit in conjunction with people and planet together, not one versus the other. It's often known, popularly known as the 3P principle. Social solidarity economy is also a network of individuals, companies, entrepreneurs, some nonprofits that produce goods and services for profit. Other terms associated with social solidarity economy is the third sector, social economy, informal economy, micro enterprises, and social enterprises. However, what makes the social solidarity economy different from the racial capitalist economy are several things. So I will talk a little bit about racial capitalist economy a little later, uh, but right now let's focus on your question, which is defining what the social solidarity economy is. So the difference is several. First, the surplus, often another term used for profit, is used for redistributive social purposes versus personal gain. So collective prosperity and sustainability are key drivers. Secondly, companies and organizations are owned by the workers rather than shareholders. So you have a different set of stakes there. 
So thus the goods and services, i.e. the things that are provided or offered, reflect the ideologies, the cultures, the needs, the desires of the people and communities rather than a pure profit maximization. Some examples of SSE that many of you may have heard of um, are mutual aid, worker-owned cooperatives, some foundations, some philanthropies, and social financing. So I want to also step back and say that social solidarity economy is hardly a new concept. It's been around for hundreds of years alongside the rise of racial capitalism. SSE is not simply an economic struggle, I think it's important to point out, but it's a political struggle, it's an anti-racist struggle, it's an anti-colonial struggle. This means that issues we think of as economic issues like job creation, development, homelessness, allocation of resources, wealth creation, capital accumulation, the climate crisis, the unsustainable forms of monetization and financialization, reductive labor, and poverty are in fact political issues too. They're historically tied to the violence of colonialism and capitalism. So there is no capitalism or there's no capitalist economy without colonialism. But to think of any kind of real equity, justice and sustainable future for ourselves, our communities and our planet, we require a different kind of economic thinking. And I think social solidarity economy offers us an alternative way to think about economics and life, everyday life. I hope that answers your question, Serena. No, thank you. That was a very thorough answer. You know, I appreciate the way you broke down every word to explain what they mean alone and then what it means for them to compound on top of each other. And I feel like that answer is the best way to start off our episode because it provides us that context. So now that we know what it means to have an economy that is social and that stands in solidarity, when we say queering the social solidarity economy, what does that concept mean? How does that respond to the needs and the wants of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, the BIPOC community? So let's again begin with the term queer. So queer by definition means strange or odd. In the context of the US around the 1940s and 1950s, queer circulated as a word to refer to people who deviated from dominant sexual norms. So to answer your question, queering as a word came to mean questioning what is considered normal rather than taking normalcy as a concept and criteria as a given. Queering means to trouble something, to consider what is normal or seen as obvious in ways to offer alternative, sometimes pluralistic understandings. It means to ask questions like, what does normal mean? Why is something considered normal? How is it considered? How did it come to be considered normal, right? There's histories behind the idea of normalization of something. So queering as a verb emerged from queer theory. It means to challenge the dominant heterosexual understanding of gender and sexuality that has come to be seen as natural and normal. It also means, and I think this is really important, to think about Queering means to think about how gender and sexual discrimination work alongside other forms of structural violence, like eurocentricism, human centricism, capitalism, racism, classism, ableism, casteism, homophobia, transphobia, and so many others. So really thinking about it as like a, like a, a, a structure of oppression, the structural violence, um, 
So to queer social solidarity economy means to return to basic questions about what is economics? What does, who does economics serve? What are the assumptions we make in economic thinking and theory and why? Who do these assumptions apply to and why? And where do these assumptions come from? And what are some of the definitions, economic concepts and theories, right? Uh, like rational choice, like cost and benefit analysis, all of these different, and I'm, I'm naming just a couple, where do these come from? And what are the historical and political processes um, that these definitions are based in? And how do we think about economics in an intersectional and intersubjective way? I think that's really important. Right. I agree with that. I think, you know, being in a space in a sort of economy, a social solidarity economy that really highlights people's identities, their intersectionalities, instead of, you know, condemning them for it or making them feel outcasted for it. That's really important. And I really believe that the only way to expand and strengthen the ideas that we infuse the social solidarity economy with is to remember that um, these ideas come out of a need. It's where excluded people seek refuge huge and a desire to see every and any type of person represented and to have that safe space to represent themselves. And we know this is important because so much of the regular economy, regular quote, regular economy or social economy, uh, at least in Canada and observing NGOs globally, they tend to be very heteronormative, you know, very straight, uh, very privileged, very European. And if they do ever focus on LGBTQ plus issues, it kind of ignores black and brown women and the BIPOC community. So now that we kind of understand the social solidarity economy and how it works to highlight and empower these voices, what is the value of that? What is the value of queering an economy? Why would we even work against these structures to do that? What's the point of all of this? I think the point in one single word, I think is survival, right? Uh, it's really about survival. It's about a way of life that is respected. It's about really thinking about the different ways that one experiences the economy. So BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color is one of the many terms that describes the historically marginalized, um, or I think better put, historically looted. So the whole economic system is actually built on genocide, slavery. I mean, you mentioned some of this, right? Engendered labor and gender and sexual violence. So to queer the social solidarity economy for BIPOC communities means to create space for the previously marginalized communities, their cultures, their frames of love, their ways of life. It means to build into our thinking about economic issues, problems and solutions that, the, that has the lasting and continuing effects of genocide, slavery, indentured labor, plantation labor, and gender and sexual violence. So these things that we think are things of the past are actually very much prevalent in the economic system. Um, so, so social solidarity economy um, is especially prevalent actually in working class and BIPOC communities in the global north and in the global south. I mean, to attend to needs of communities of color means to think about the various examples across history for example, mutual aid has been used in the times of crisis. So I want to I want to share a couple of examples to make it concrete for our audience here. Um, trans and queer people of color around the world have always organized mutual aid for one another, including housing and food. We think about housing and food as basic necessities. Here I'm thinking about the Star Foundation, um, 
founded by Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, uh, which provided housing and other support to homeless LGBTQ youth and sex workers in New York in 1970s and 1980s. Another example is local community farms and gardens. We can think about the Black Creek Farm right here in Toronto. A lot of times mutual aid, i.e. Social, soli social solidarity economy, is not acknowledged as an alternative economic thinking. And a lot of poor and working class communities that are BIPOCs, their labor is devalued or dismissed, especially through the idea of the informal economy. Another major example I think that all of us can relate to is COVID. I feel like in COVID we saw a major example of labor that is devalued and dismissed is care labor, but also how dominant economic thinking diminishes the value of labor we rely on in our everyday and crisis situations. Here I'm thinking about the nurses, the front, what, what, what was in, in news called the frontline workers, the nurses, the grocery store stockers and cashiers, the city cleaning staff, the hospital cleaning staff, maintenance staff, farm workers and food pickers. You, you provided so many concrete, uh, real-world examples that we see in the news, maybe in times of crisis, like you mentioned, COVID, or even just in our everyday lives. And sometimes it's something that can be very normalized to us. And circling back to the beginning of your answer, when you said creating a space, I love the way you said that because that's, that's what I was thinking about when I thought about my answer to this question, too. When I think of queering, I think of creating a space that does more than just include people of different ideas identities, intersectionalities, because sometimes when you want to include a quote different type of person in a space, say, you know, a person of color, a queer person, a non-binary person, you kind of feel like you're there as that token type of person. You don't want to just be there. You want to be put in an empowering position where your perspective is respected and is seen as worthy. And it has to do with all those structures of violence and power that you mentioned before. Only some perspectives are seen as valuable. And I think a queer or queering a social solidarity economy works to deconstruct what those values are and who gets to contribute value. And this sort of ties into your work with the Dice Collective as a group of feminist scholars who want to highlight how to build those culturally diverse economies. I first interacted with this group when I met Dr. Caroline Hussain, who is a professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough. And she introduced me to this whole world of, you know, social economics and all the members of the Dice Collective, yourself included. And I want to know more about uh, the relationship you fostered between your own work and the work of the Dice Collective. So what does the DICE Collective mean to you? And what does your research mean for the DICE? I absolutely love that you started with Caroline because Caroline is one of my favorite people, Dr. Caroline Hussain. Um, I met Caroline a couple of years ago um, at a conference on Association of Social Economics and totally fell in love with her and her work. I think her book on politicized microfinance does such a gorgeous, offers such a gorgeous historical perspective on what we thought as the kind of end-all be-all of, of, um, of saving the world, which is microfinance. And she does this gorgeous reading of how microfinance needs, we really need to rethink how microfinance works. Her new work, which is an edited, um, a edited book called Beyond Racial Capitalism, Cooperatives in the African Diaspora, has been so influential to my own thinking about social solidarity economy, or also just thinking about alternative ways to think about economics. The Dice Collective is an organic group of 
women of color professors uh, that Caroline has kind of networked together to really think about, we're asking different questions about the economy. They're political scientists or economists and how to better serve the BICOP community. I'll speak of my work in a little bit um, and how it connects with the DICE Collective. But I think what is so wonderful about the DICE Collective is really thinking about uh, feminist economics, really thinking about how do we as feminist political scientists, feminist economics, what kind of questions are we asking about the interlocking structures of violence in our communities and communities that we are part of in the, in the places that we live um, and really not taking a lot of these things for granted and actually questioning the root of these problems. Um, I think earlier, Serena, you said something really gorgeous about being this desire for representation, this desire for inclusion. I think a lot of the work that DICE is also doing and the scholars that are part of DICE and all so many other scholars are doing is really questioning about what system are we being included in, right? So if the system was created on a particular set of violences, then this desire to be included into the system, what does that mean? Are we putting people and stirring them into an existing system that just doesn't work? Or do we really need to step back and recreate a system? The reality is the system and resistance to the dominant system has always been there. So actually thinking about resistance to power as a thing of ongoing resistance, not that something new needs to be created, but that the new is always being created alongside the old, right? So that's, I think, really important to think about. One of the things I'll share is like my own journey in coming to social solidarity economy. So I worked in, in philanthropy and social financing for you know over 15 years. And when I came to my doctoral work, I really was interested in this question around money, really thinking about what does money offer? Why do we need it? Can, is, there a, is there a possibility of a moneyless economy? Um, if indeed money is a, you know, is, is a, is a, is about value, right? So over the course of my doctoral work, as we all know, for all of us that are in, in academic journeys, undergraduate, graduate, or postgraduate, uh, is that your questions get honed in, but you really return to some of the basic questions. So funny enough, my, my dissertation was um, titled Value Factoring Life. So I was really looking at how, uh, in the context of citizenship, in South Asia, in the context of Pakistan, how citizenship is being manufactured, right? How are we manufacturing these ideal citizens, these productive citizens uh, within the racial capitalist framework in, in post-colonial uh, nations like Pakistan? Um, so I think from there, I kind of learned about uh, uh, both a lot of the people in DICE Collective are my elders that I've learned from, including Caroline, um, about feminist economics. And I learned about post-colonial feminist economics. And I was just so blown away by all of the incredible work that's already been done. Uh, decolonial economics. There's an entire discipline called queer economics. So as a doctoral student, I was just really amazed at how these, these um, spaces were not new. And in fact, there was so much that I could build on and there was so much debt I owed to scholars and, and activists and uh, theorists before me that had done the hard work of really thinking about these issues. So funny enough, I got a chance to teach uh, a class called Gender and Economics when I lived in New York at NYU to a group of seniors that were majoring in economics. And what was so mind blowing was that they had never heard of feminist economics. And I was really um, kind of taken aback 
by this because the students were incredible. They were part of NYU's professional studies, which is an alternative undergraduate program offered to students that do non-traditional degrees. Um, and we really had a, a really wonderful and really um, theoretically rich time thinking about these concepts around gender and sexuality and economics, especially in the context of in New York, right? And uh, what it means because all of them were working, some were working in different different kinds of nonprofits, banks, uh, non uh, uh, universities, uh, the, fine, uh, the, the fashion sector. So it was such a rich experience to see that how some of the thinking I was doing in these, in my own work, uh, which was, you know, uh, was being also something I could teach in a class like gender and economics. So right now, I think I'll talk a little bit more about my work. So currently, I'm kind of building on the idea of value and thinking about how is labor valued? Let's let's think of it this way. Like, I'm interested in think, asking the question of what labor is valued, what labor is devalued, and what labor is overly valued. So my work is really continuing the work that I've been doing in my doctoral work, which is thinking about sexuality, gender, and the global South, especially in the context of South Asia, and really honing in on this idea of how do these ideas of labor emerge, uh, and what labor, especially care labor, domestic labor, uh, informal labor, how do these get sidelined when we really think about, quote unquote, economics with a, with a capital E? So I'll stop there, Serena. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> everything you said, that's such a beautiful way to put what inspired you throughout your academic and personal journey. And I truly think that when people speak about their work and they're passionate about it, you can tell, like you can tell when it means something to them and a future that they imagine for themselves and for everybody. And, you know, as I've told you before, Dr. Shroff, um, I really see your work as like so valuable, so transformative. I would finish one of your articles or one of your books and I would close it and I'd be like, wow, because it's just so I felt like I was reading a book. I felt like I was reading a novel because you just pour so much emotion emotionality and beauty in it and it's through that personal lens that you urge this sense of advocacy like nothing you say is lost in the people that are really reading your words and it's this interaction in your work that's very similar to a statement that all of you at the dice collective created recently uh, it was called no one works for free and it speaks on how historically women of color are continuously asked to share their knowledge for nothing or very little in return and when i I was reading it everything in it was just struck as so relevant though you know we're in 2023 so much work has been done to progress against you know uh structural violence you know progress to help women of color feel valued and their work feel valued so it it begs the question why did you alongside a number of other feminist political economists feel that a statement like that was needed in 2023 Thank you, Serena, so much. You're so kind and I'm so uh, thankful and honored that you're reading my work with such care and love and generosity. So thank you. I'm so glad it's resonating and I, I'm excited to be in conversation with, with you and other young people to really think about a world that we just have not lived in before. So I think the idea that we want to create or we are interested in asking these difficult, difficult questions of ourselves and of others and of our structures is, is a really truly collective process. Um, this kind of takes me to the question about the statement. I think the statement was uh, uh, out of, which all manifestos in many ways, which I think this is in many ways, comes out of frustration and rage because a lot of a lot of women of color professors get asked to do extra labor 
and not get compensated. And that compensation, obviously, there's a monetary compensation, but there's also an acknowledgement um, of the kind of labor that is being asked by, especially women of color professors, queer of color professors, uh, queer, um, um, and what that means. So I think the statement, it's, you know, kind of in many ways, you know, we think we have progressed, we think we have come so far, and in many ways we still need to continuing. And I think that's what feminist critique or queer feminist critique means is to continuing to question the different um, evolutions of society that we are all part of every year, every decade, you know? So I think it really goes back to labor, labor, labor. Like what labor is valued? What labor is undervalued? Uh, how do we quantify labor? How do we how do we put a price on particular labor? And how is some labor uh, unquantifiable in many ways, right? And what happens when we try to quantify these things um, into monetary compensation? And I think it's equally important. I think this discussion about how women of color professors need to be valued when they're asked to do speeches, when they're asked to do anything, they need to be compensated. Um, but also compensation depends on who is they're doing it for, whether it's a large university, whether it's a small nonprofit. So being reasonable about this as well, of course. But I think the statement was such a, a, a labor of love in many ways of all the people that were involved to really think about how do we, um, to really think about this idea of labor is not free. Like, I mean, the statement is no one works for free. Every labor, there is, there's a price for it. Whether that price is a it, it, and, and it's quantifiable or some labor is unquantifiable. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do we quantify something that's unquantifiable? But yes, it goes back to labor. It goes back to paying women of color professors for their extra labor asked for. It's also really thinking about how extra affective and emotional work is expected because they're women, because they're queer, or because they're feminine or because they're femme. You know? Thank you for that. That's that's really true. Sometimes I feel like when people view you as having a certain identity or coming from a certain place or having certain intersectionalities, they put the onus and the burden of doing extra work on you. Whereas, you know, I feel like the systems should be changed and upended. And maybe people who are used to having their opinions and their work and um, themselves, their identities valued, maybe they should look towards us more versus us having to, you know, work really extra hard to communicate where we come from and the value of our work. But nonetheless, a statement like no one works for free was just so beautiful and so well-rounded and how it aimed to speak for people who typically are not listened to. And I think that we can only bring longevity to these ideas by teaching others why it means something for a future for all of us. So as a final question, how can we teach others, especially those who haven't had much exposure to alternative economic systems to support and be allies of the LGBTQ plus community when we think about feminist economies in societies? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for me, it goes to goes back to creating space for difference. And uh, like I said earlier, it's about really stepping back and learning together. Um, I think each of us experience the economy and face different set of challenges on an everyday basis. And I think it's about really thinking about how do we learn from each other? Um, I think one of the things I've learned over seven, eight years of teaching university classes is that it's about a collective collective learning process, right? So even though some people like myself may 
our professors and, you know, our, our do this for a living. I think oftentimes in my classroom, students like yourself, Serena, offer such an interesting, beautiful, critical perspective, bringing in their own lives, bringing in their own cultures, bringing in their own kind of lived experience. And I think it's about creating space for that. Um, it's about constantly being alert to how the system functions and how some of us are implicated in the system, but also that there's other systems possible. There's other possibilities out there. And economics is a relational process. It's a relational process to each other, to land. Um, and it really begins with our relationships to each other, to the relationship to the land, to the spaces we occupy or the spaces we live in and not to occupy them, you know, and to actually have a respect and accountability to each other, to the, the places and communities that we're part of or have immigrated to. And I think this is where I learned from indigenous economics and decolonial economics, and really think about different forms and, and how we value. And for me, it always comes back to value. I mean, maybe that's why, you know, my dissertation was called value factoring because that's the term that kept coming back to me. I really value different types of labor, different types of relationalities, paid and unpaid, and really think about terms like productivity, this idea that we can own land, i.e. property, where does that come from? Um, it also means about questioning these, these you know, um, news of, of, uh, things that, I mean, news things and news lines like that say, let's keep the economy moving, let's move the economy. And I, you know, post COVID, this was very constant. And uh, you know, um, this constant kind of rhetoric of let's move the economy, it's about the economy, we need to get the economy going. And I think we really have to go back to say, what are we moving? What is the economy and why does it continuously need this movement? But then within this movement, who is benefiting and who is suffering? So I think it really, for me, goes back to, like you said, like really stepping back and, and, and making space, creating space and opening up space. I think when you have any kind of power, which, you know, I do in my classrooms, is to create space versus, you know, close space and create space for openness and a suspicion of power and generosity um, and to question each other and learn together. I think that's really important. Thank you for that. That was so, so well said and so inspiring. Working together, valuing each other's opinions, lived experiences. I think sometimes we forget the value of that. And personally, I'm very, I don't like capitalism. I don't like the way it finds a way to monetize absolutely everything, every experience. And I think that we need to move away from this very um, narrow view of economics as being buying and selling the way capitalism has taught us. I think that as each generation realizes the weight of the conditions they inherit from the world, they can often lose sight of the solutions that can help mitigate them. And I think one of the most important things to remember in these kinds of conversations is that for any problems we encounter, there are communities already working on those solutions. Our job is to talk about, support, amplify these ideas so that we never forget the alternatives to what our world is right now. A lot of uh, LGBTQ plus people might feel that the world always tries to change them or subvert them into a non-existence or a quiet existence or a predetermined experience. But if we remind ourselves that the world can be whatever we want it to be, we can step up and change it into something that represents us instead of the status quo. All we have to do is ask ourselves what kind of world we want to live in. Thank you again for coming on this episode, Dr. Shroff. And this concludes our conversation on the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast.
A million thanks to Dr. Sarah Shroff for sharing her thoughts on and experiences with the feminist political economy and how to queer it towards more inclusive societies. And of course, for her membership in and dedication to the Dice Collective. To keep thinking with us, send us any questions, comments, or ideas you may have at Africana underscore economies on Instagram and Facebook and at Africana Economy on Twitter. The Diverse Economies for Youth podcast is made by youth for youth and made possible by funding from the Canada Research Chair for Africana Development and Feminist Political Economies at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I'm your host, Serena Bahadur, and next month we'll have a new episode on our podcast for you where we learn how to create a world that treats us as people instead of as profits. As always, thank you for listening and until next time.